in the fall of 1971, I was just a freshman at Cedarville College in Ohio, but met a young woman, Deborah Jones, and was immediately intrigued. I had her in my U.S. history class, so we sat together quite often, and I was able to find that she was not only attractive, but she was a quite adventurous person and quite thoughtful, too, so we had some great conversations. One of our conversation themes was the dating games of our classmates. And we would sit and observe some of the things they would do, and we'd critique it, and then we'd suggest to one another how it would work better. Well, come spring of that school year, we were spending more time outside of class together discussing our theories and putting them into practice in our own relationship. Now, now we were under the gun. But in the summer, I was off to Asia. Deborah went to the East Coast in Maryland. And uh, we were to letter writing instead of class conversations. A lot of letters went back and forth. Um, do you remember letters? <laughs> it was the way we used to communicate when we were at a distance. Just thought I'd check in with you on that. In the fall, of that next year, I was drafted into the Army, did not go back to Seville, nor did Deborah. She went out to the West Coast. So the letters continued back and forth, now with the possibility of phone calls and occasional get-togethers. And they weren't regular enough for me. It was important that we nurture this carefully, though, because both of us were committed to what the Song of Songs says, to not awaken or stir up love until it's ready. So we were really careful. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about the bride of Christ. And it would be real easy to take our <clears throat> experience of briding and grooming and impose it on the text. But, but I think you know that this text comes from 2,000 years ago, at least, in a culture that is quite removed from ours. So I think as we explore this together this morning for a few minutes, it's important that we not only talk about our understanding of bride and groom, but try to go back into that ancient Middle Eastern understanding of bride and groom. And then, most importantly, apply it to our relationship with Christ. So let's start with just a couple of... Um, basic principles, and that is that God has used the image of bride and groom of marriage for his relationship with his people, not just in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, but also in the Old Testament. Israel was referred to as the bride of God. God was married to Israel. They entered into a, a loving covenant at Sinai, and they made it real throughout their experience. God was a faithful husband, but I think you know Israel was not such a faithful wife. In fact, whenever the prophets spoke of Israel's unfaithfulness, they referred to it as adultery. This was serious stuff. Whenever they went after other gods or other nations, they were being unfaithful to the husband who loved them. And so we find in passages like Isaiah 54, this image comes out, <clears throat> says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. 
he has called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, forsaken and grieved in spirit, like the wife of a man's youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I abandon you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing wrath for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. See, woven in this text of love to God's people is really hints of a strained relationship. It wasn't easy, but God was going to continue to love them as a divine husband. So I could have gone to numerous other Old Testament texts, but I think you get the idea. Israel was related to God the Father as, as husband and wife. In the New Testament, we read from Ephesians 5, one of the clear indications of how the Apostle Paul was using the husband-wife relationship for our relationship, the church, to Christ. And so just as God was married to Israel, now Christ, his son, the divine son, is, is married to the church. In this text, it's quite surprising. We think Paul is just talking about husbands and wives, and all of a sudden he says, and what I'm really talking about is Christ and his church. And it kind of surprises us to see how quickly he's tying those, maybe even confusing those two because they're so tight for him. Jesus, the, the husband, is the one who loves and lays down his life willingly for his wife. He nourishes and cares for tenderly. He promises to to gather and join and become one with his wife. And so we have this beautiful imagery from marriage applied to Christ and the church. But I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves. I'd like to go back to the ancient Middle Eastern understanding of the dating, engaging, marrying scene that we're familiar with. First of all, the, the bride of those days was chosen. It was more of an arranged marriage. We're not used to that, and so we need to put ourselves back in that understanding, which I might say has really been the, the most common understanding of the marriage dating ritual in not only ancient society, but in many societies still today. It's the predominant way of, of having the marriage more arranged. A great window into this comes from Genesis chapter 24. You can look at that later. It's a beautiful story of Abraham wanting to arrange a marriage for his son Isaac. So he sends his servant off to a distant land where some relatives are so that he might draw from the common heritage of his family. The servant goes with a prayer that God might direct, and the, and the prayer is answered with Rebekah taking care of not just the servant after a long trip, but even the camels that he's brought. And so, so the servant showers Rebecca with gifts and the family and talks the family into letting her come back with him. And then a beautiful part of the story is the family turns to her and says, are you willing to do this? And she says, yes. I don't know about you, but my marriage wasn't arranged quite that way. Any of you have sent off a servant to find your wife? But that's, that's the way it occurred for Isaac. 
Uh, my mom had a more local girl pick for me. Um, she had that all arranged, but I didn't go along with the program. I found someone at college, nurtured this relationship away from the home. When, when we were engaged a little bit later, they hardly knew Deborah, and we had to work on repairing that relationship. It's quite different for us. But let me go back and say, for our lesson this morning, our marriage to Christ is really more like an arranged marriage. And I hope you're okay with that. But God the Father reached out, initiated in love and concern, not just for his son, but for the son's future bride. And it set everything up. He's reached out to a world in love and sent his son to die for our sins, gave his life for us. That was the, the bride's price, was paid so dramatically. And then, yes, we have a choice in the matter. We can either receive that free gift of a married life with Christ forever, or we can reject it, just as Rebecca seemed to have a choice in the matter. But friends, this is all set up. It's just a matter of whether we receive it or, or reject it. It's an arranged marriage. To become the bride of Christ, we just need to receive what God has initiated and done for us through Jesus Christ. The second step in the ancient practice beyond being chosen is to be betrothed. It's a lot like engaged, but I think it's good that we keep that old word, betrothed or betrothal period, because it was different in some ways. The moment you entered into this relationship that in a great degree was arranged for the ancient married folk, you, you entered into a betrothal period that was binding. It was the beginning of the marriage. The two parties were called husband and wife, but they weren't living together enjoying the full intimacy of marriage. The husband would go off and set up the home for their future life. The wife would have to prove herself pure, not involved in any other relationships that would cause a pregnancy. So often the betrothal period was a year or so in order to really prove that this wife was, was pure. And so in that sense, you realize in the New Testament when Mary gets pregnant during the betrothal period with Joseph, it was devastating to him. It was a social scandal in the neighborhood. And Joseph, if you read the text closely, planned to divorce his wife. They weren't even married yet in the fullest sense, but divorce was what it meant. It was such a binding betrothal period that he was thinking about divorcing Mary. That gives you some sense of this ancient practice. Betrothal period was committed, but not living together. When Deborah and I finally got around to using the word love, we let it get stirred up and awakened in our relationship and expressed it. We knew right away because of those arrangements and conversations we'd had from college days, we knew right away that we were talking about a love that was going to be lifelong. And before long, I... I asked her to marry me. She said yes. Did give her a choice in the matter. Thanks, Toby. Yeah, I was so glad. But then we had to tell my folks, and they hardly knew her, and so it was hard for them to celebrate 
with us, but we were able to work on that relationship going forward. But for six months, we were thousands of miles separated, and the letters went back and forth as we talked about our, our wedding plans. Well, it's important for us to see as Christ's bride today that this is the period we're in right now. We're, we're more betrothed brides than, than full brides. We're in a period where God has made a commitment through Christ to us, and, and those believers who are in Christ and in the church are, are really brides of Christ, but in this betrothal period, we're separated. Christ himself said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come back, I will take you to be with me forever. And so he's thinking in groom terms. What are we to be doing? We're to remain faithful. We're to remain committed to him and pure in our practice and in our thinking and in our words. We're called to be people who are faithful, but also anticipating his return, ready for his return at a moment's notice, having our dress nearby because a wedding is coming. So how ready are we? How faithful are we? That's the calling of, of Christ's bride today. The final step is not just to be chosen and betrothed, but to be wedded, to actually be married in the fullest sense. And in the ancient practice, usually the two are in the same town and the, the groom is setting up the home for their future and he would grab his best friends and they would go across town uh, excited to the bride's house and, and take her, give her maybe a little time to get dressed and to gather her bridesmaids together and take her over to the groom's house through town in a wild and joyful and musical dancing kind of processional. And they would go to the house where promises would be made, where blessings would be shared, and even where a feast would be served. And the party would sometimes go on for days as they celebrated that marriage. Well, I wore a Gatsby-style suit. It was uh, 1974 in December, and, um, and Deborah wore a dress that was uh, put together by her own work, hard work in preparing her own dress. She made her own dress. And then it was a Friday evening, snowy Friday evening in December in the Akron, Ohio area, when we gathered family and friends and went through a ceremony. My dad led us through and then just walked down the hall to a back room where we had punch and cake. That was the feast that we had at our wedding. Being in the evening, it didn't require a dinner, but that was a way of keeping things really simple for us. But you can see that in the cause of, of Christ and in the relationship of Christ and his church, we gather some of the same imagery of a wedding and a supper, especially when John looks out into the future and sees in the heavens uh, a large crowd crying out these words, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb, Christ, has come, and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. 
for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, John was looking out into the future at a marriage and at a supper, a feast that was going to occur for, for the bride of the Lamb. Now betrothed, then fully wedded. And so it is we have this wonderful story told in this image, this beautiful, meaningful, a fulfilling image of the bride of Christ. We see this story of how God arranged things, chose us through his love, and then is now nurturing this relationship, taking good care of us, but has gone off to prepare an eternal place for us. And eventually we'll come and we'll be fully wedded, celebrating with him eternally forever. I might just mention that forever scene is often referred to in theological books as the consummation a wonderful marriage term for how it's all coming to full fruition. And so we have this story that brings us together this morning. But I might just pause at the end and say just as a pastor to you, let's not only celebrate our relationship as the bride of Christ, but let's maybe take a little better care of our own marriage relationship. You see, we're surrounded by a society that's doing quite a bit of rewriting of what marriage means. And we don't really control all that around us, but we do control our own marriages and the way we think of marriage. And I would just like to challenge you, what if everything we did in our marriage went through the grid of how am I reflecting the heavenly marriage with Christ by the things I'm doing and saying? and even thinking? What if we were, as a church, to kind of stand up to this image and say, let's give the best witness to the world around us of how Christ loves the church and how the church loves Christ back. But before we end, I want to call you to a vow exchange. Um, we're running out of time, but it's worth doing. So if you give me just a few minutes, I would like to remind you that Christ has made vows to you. He's expressed his eternal love, unconditional love to you personally, not just to us as the church, but to you personally. He loves you, and he's wondering, will you respond to me? Every wedding I've done for years, I lead couples through what's called the Declaration of Consent. And so if you would bow your head, I would like to invite you into a declaration of your consent, if you so wish. This is to the bride. Will you have this man, this Jesus, to be your husband? To live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love him, honor and keep him? And forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live. If so, answer, I will. And whether you've said that for the first time or the hundredth time as you renew your vows this morning, I would encourage you to maybe think 
a little bit about how did I, how did I meet this one I've fallen in love with? Um, have I exchanged some rings with him? I often think of baptism as like the wedding ring. It's an outward expression of, a, of an inward relationship with Christ. How have I expressed that? And what am I doing even this week to nurture that relationship? Don't take it for granted. What am I doing this week for that? Why well, invite you to stand for the benediction hymn as we celebrate God's love shed abroad in our hearts.